0: Kevin Hillier, welcome to The Legal Minefield podcast, a podcast that gives you direct access to a man with decades of experience in the legal profession. That man is John Mellier. You can contact him directly via our email address, info.thelegalminefield at gmail.com. It's that simple. Hope you enjoyed this episode of The Legal Minefield podcast. Greetings, John. How has your week been? Um, pretty hectic, Kevin.
1: And how are you?
0: I'm good. I'm good. Good. good Keen good. to do uh, well. Now we had some uh, some terrific response uh, via uh, the uh, the email address, which is info.thelegalminefield at gmail.com. It's simple as just sending us a question to that and uh, and you'll get a response from us. And really? that is on the Facebook page. So, and we've also had some interaction. Uh, I've had some interaction uh, separately as well for people who listened to it and sent me uh, emails. And this is one of them uh, that I want to kick it off with. It is a very current and a very relevant question for now for a lot of people. What rights do we have when we purchase outdoor concert tickets? This is, of course, on the back of the Splendour in the Grass uh, debacle that happened a couple of weeks back. There were flooding, there were delays, people were wanting to know, you know, what rights do I have? Can I get my money back? What do I do? What What should you do in this situation? And can you get your money back? And where are the Where are the pitfalls in, in these kind of uh, agreements between people?
1: So before we kick off, I'll just state a general disclaimer. So any advice we're giving is of a general nature. And if you want specific advice, you should consult a legal practitioner. Yep. Effectively, what the issue with the Splendour um, concert is that um, that falls under um, Australian consumer law and um, deals with fair trading in Australia and protecting consumers. Um, nationally, it came into being um, in Australia with all the state and territory governments. It came into effect on the first of January, twenty eleven. So under the Australian Consumer Law, consumers have the same protection and rights and businesses have the same obligations throughout Australia. So there's no um, chopping and changing. The Australian Consumer Law includes and looks at things like unfair contract terms, you know, for consumers and small business contracts and national law guaranteeing consumer rights when buying goods and services. And that's what that would fall under, the, the concept a national product safety law, et cetera. So this Australian consumer law applies everywhere. It will will apply to the um, promoters of the event. And what I would recommend all the concert goers should do is contact their relevant consumer affairs in Victoria, Um, relevant consumer affairs all over Australia. Every state government will have one. That would be your first port of call to see if they can give you some assistance and put some pressure on that. Um, my view is that the promoters have unfortunately breached their obligation to the consumers or the ticket holders, and the ticket holders certainly have a right of at least getting their money back, yep. I would have thought.
0: But they weren't uh, given the service that they'd, uh, they would sure, they paid that, money for.
1: That, that's right. They paid for a service, they promoted a service, and they haven't pr- provided the service
0: What about that wonderful thing that's on the end of every uh, advertisement we now hear and certainly the ones that I do voiceovers for, T's and C's apply, which seems to be some sort of magical thing that gets you out of everything.
1: So the terms and conditions, depending on whether there are any that were given to the ticket buyers or holders, will depend on what's written, what's in there. It will limit their liability to a certain extent but not fully exclude them. Yeah. And the only way they can be fully excluded is if each ticket holder signed a release that said, we release you forever and a day from any legal liability whatsoever. Now, that's not going to happen in the terms and conditions. Yeah, There might be a clause in there about the weather. I don't know because I haven't yeah. seen a ticket. ticket to For, ticket for an outdoor concert, advice. I think there generally is. There generally is, so yeah. there might be a catch in that, but generally speaking, they would have the right to recover or get their money back for the tickets because the event never went ahead, yep. and um, you know they were left there for two days or three days. It was
0: it, now to get your money back for the you know say you pay hundred dollars for the ticket, you get your hundred bucks back for your ticket. I think that's that's fair and reasonable, and that's and, and,
1: that's that's right. That's the minimum. Yeah. Then if you want compensation because you say you've you know you've, for instance, you might have got caught out in the weather for three days and got pneumonia and not been able to work. Yep. You could try and seek getting your loss of wages reimbursed or stuff like that. Yeah, you could have a go at doing it. Yeah,
0: okay. Certainly. So, um, is, there a, is there a new, and I, I I've i seen little bits and pieces about this and I don't have a, a knowledge on it, but there's almost like a COVID clause in some things now where that gets you out of everything. That's like another little magical the-
1: Yeah, there have been plenty of COVID clauses now and people are putting COVID clauses in just about everything to do with from tourism travel, which is a standard, through to um, other events. The COVID clause is not going to get them out of this event, this issue. The issue was simply the weather. Apart from the weather, the facilities weren't provided to um, accommodate the weather or the bands to play with the weather like that. And there was no provision, unfortunately, for the ticket holders to stay there, or you know, basically they stayed in mud. Yeah, <laughs> so they, they, they wallowed uh, in the mud.
0: Uh, um, and it's it's not got the uh, the sexy kind of uh, nostalgia of, uh, of Woodstock did uh, back in nineteen sixty nine when you you didn't have any expectations of anything better than that.
1: That's right, because remembering Kevin that um, whoever owns the land has been paid yes. for the event. Yeah, so they got their money. The prom- the ticket promoters got their money. Yeah, so someone along the way, is responsible Yeah. so that next time when they have the event next year, they make sure they cover these issues. I would think next year's event will have probably a bigger disclaimer on the ticket yeah, yeah. terms and conditions for, for these issues. But, you know, everyone check your, your tickets, check to see if there's any terms and conditions when you got your email from them, and um, if there's nothing in there that you think is too big a problem, Consult consumer affairs because it doesn't cost you anything. If you're not happy with consumer affairs, go and see a lawyer. Uh,
0: just in a broader sense, on on the Ts and Cs and and things when you when you sign an agreement or you buy a ticket or you know you purchase whatever it is. I mean, we all know when we buy a house, we 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 read the conditions of that. Million miles now because that is you know a massive, massive purchase. But when you're buying a washing machine or you're buying, you know, something like that, uh, should we be more mindful of uh, of some of the, uh, the the pitfalls that we fall into when we when we take we, on these? We,
1: we we should. But the good thing about the Australian consumer law is that it provides warranties and protections for consumers. So despite there being um, you know terms or conditions by the manufacturer saying we don't. You know, if the motor goes in three months, we're not responsible. Well, hang on a minute, there'll be Australian consumer law and a consumer regulation that says that's nice, but you need to give them 12 months. Yep. So there is something there to assist.
0: So we've almost got uh, a, a safety net despite ourselves.
1: We do. We have a safety net in the Australian um, consumer law and that's basically the concept that the government's um, have always had the legislation to say that goods must be fit for their purpose, and that's the basic where it stems from.
0: Yeah. Okay. Well, that's good to know. Now let's talk about another one, uh, and this one actually came from uh, a football club that I'm involved with. Copywriting a logo or an image, uh, you know, whether it's for your football club or for your, for your you know, for your podcast. What can you do when someone takes a version of that and starts to use it or basically steals it for their purposes? If you, if you haven't done anything to copyright it as such, and, and if you, where, where do you copyright these things?
1: So if you haven't copyrighted the logo or image, you may struggle to say that it's your original work or image that's protected. IP Australia is the place to go where you register the trademark through the government. So what happens is you register the trademark, you go online, you sign up and get an account, you go through the process, and what happens is you register it, whether it's a name or a logo, you register it, then they go through the checks to see that it's something that is Proper to be a, a registered trademark or logo. Yep. There's a standard that you need to wait at least six months once it's been posted up there before the trademark can be granted and certified. Okay. So that's a standard. So that's so anyone throughout the world can go ahead and check that. So it's IP Australia is the website. So it's ipaustralia.gov.au and they'll have information on there how to register the trademark or the logo. If you're not sure, you can see an intellectual property lawyer. So there's a specialist lawyer that deals with that type of work. Yeah, They're called an intellectual property lawyer, and they can talk to you about trademarks and registrations and even protecting them for so that even companies overseas can't rip you off and use your trademark. Yeah, So that's a good way of doing that. Effectively, what I would do if I was the club or, or someone uh, who owns that logo, who drew it, I'd be engaging the lawyer and writing to the people who are using it and telling them to to cease doing that. If they don't cease doing that, then you'd you'd issue an injunction to stop them from using it in the appropriate court or jurisdiction to try and stop them from um, using it and getting a gain in it until you have the fight to work out actually who is the original owner of that logo and design do most,
0: and I, this is a question without any notice whatsoever, do most uh, people who, you know, graphic design people, do they self uh, sort of register their own material? When If I was a graphic artist and I did a logo for this, say we did a logo for this podcast with a graphic artist, would that graphic artist then register that as their work so they know that um, they did the original one?
1: Professional graphic artists, most will do that. Yeah. They will have an intellectual property lawyer that they deal with and yeah. they will do that especially if it's been commissioned work, which they're paid for. Uh, but uh, some don't. They're just are freelance and they just do their work and you see a lot of that happening. Like my my logo is not trademarked or, or anything like that. So, yeah, it, it does happen.
0: It's a bit like a songwriter who comes up with, you know, the times they are a-changing and then four blocks away there's a bloke who starts singing the times they are a-changing because he heard, might have heard it. It's one of those
1: things, isn't it? It's exactly right. It's the same scenario, like, You've, you've heard some of the cases with music. So, for example, um, I think men at work had the issue where yeah. the flute under, section. yeah. Down under, yeah. The flute section sounded like. Um, Kookaburra. You know, Kookaburra sits in a. Yeah. And, and they had to, the court found it, held that it was, and they had to pay them a share of the royalties back pay. So, yeah, it, it it's a similar scenario as that
0: okay so if you've uh, if you've got uh, the advice here would be if you've you've got a logo designed for anything that you're doing make sure you register it then uh, especially
1: especially if you're going to operate a business from it and it's going to promote your brand and you want to protect your brand from your competitors you should register that
0: i can imagine and i know that if you for things like the olympic games and coca-cola if you use their logo in any any form whatsoever my goodness gracious me do you find out about it very quickly
1: quick smart you'll have a letter on your doorstep quicker than you can say letter <laughs> yeah. yes. and and, we, and with the ter- and with their lawyers 10 paces behind ready to go
0: oh so. yeah no they're ready to go I've had a I've had an, an instance um, with uh, the Olympic Games with the radio station I was working for back in 96 when Atlanta had the Olympic Games which of course was coca-cola and Atlanta yep. and we used a particular expression on the radio station at the time well I reckon 30 seconds after it went to air we had a phone call and a, a very um, stern person on the end of that phone saying, if you do that again, <laughs> you will be in big trouble. And we're going, but we just use the words Olympic. You don't own them. We do.
1: Exactly right because uh, the brand, your brand is your is your selling point and your income yep. potentially. Yep. So that that's what people are trying to protect. Yeah, and being- when you get a,
0: an organisation like Coca-Cola or the Olympic Games, that is a brand that is worth a very, very large amount of money. Correct. <laughs> okay. So protect yourself, but uh, but also don't uh, don't go using other people's logos and stuff unless you uh, you have their permission. The Correct. Hey, I wanted to want to touch on family law because family law is obviously something that I think we will get a lot of questions about uh, in the course of this program. All the different permutations of, of family law. It's a very emotive. I, I've I've been to the family law courts. Uh, it's it's a very emotive, a very emotional place. It's a very sad place, isn't it?
1: It's a very sad place. It's um, a very jaded place. It's a place you don't really want to end up in. But yep. unfortunately, the way things go in society and the way some people are, there's no option but to go to court. Having said that, you may have heard of about a year ago, the merger of the the Federal Circuit Court and the Family Court into one court. So that's been completed. So the federal government merged the two courts together. So there's now the Federal Circuit and Family Court of Australia as one court. Okay. And the Federal Circuit Court and the Family Court deal with family law together. And what they've done is they've come up with a lot of practice directions and pre-procedures that must be followed before parties can even apply to get into court. So, what happens now if you're in a family law matter or dispute? You have to go through through the pre practice procedures, which require an attempt at mediation or an attempt at seeing a family dispute resolution practitioner, who's a qualified practitioner who can sit and try and mediate the dispute between the parties to mm. deal with the kids and or property. And if that's not successful, a certificate has to be issued, especially in the case of children, a Section 60I certificate, which says they've had mediations, not worked. Then once that's all happened, then the lawyers can go off and issue the proceedings in the court. So it's all about pre-dispute resolution. It's all about completing all that and having what we call disclosure of all financial documents, assets and material before you even get to think about going into court. Yeah. The only exceptions to that are if there's an issue of family violence or safety and family violence issues. They're the only exceptions where you can apply directly to the court and expedite and get things moving quickly. But everyone else, you have to go through mediation or counseling and Dispute resolution once, yeah. So, so that's changed, but yeah, it is still a very sad place to be. It's it, no one means out a family law.
0: Well, if you if you've gone through all that mediation and you still finish up in court, then it, obviously there are, there are matters to be resolved. But that's a, that seems to me to be a much more sensible and thoughtful and less um, confrontational way of going about resolving the issues.
1: It is, and in another episode, just remind me, we'll talk about collaborative law. So collaborative law is where the parties sit together. They have a collaborative lawyer on each side and potentially a collaborative coach. And I'm, I'm also a registered collaborative practitioner. And we try and come back for two or three meetings and sit and try and resolve it and then end up drawing up final orders to go to the court. So it's all wrapped up without everyone being hostile with each other and yeah. finding it's a better way. It's very big in America. A lot of it happens in Queensland. There's a lot of it going on up there, and um, I've done a bit of it down here. And it's cost-effective. It helps relationships stay intact. So if you've got kids, it helps you still remain friends and be good parents. It's a better way to go. Yeah, but yeah, we, well, we, we'll talk. We'll talk about that another time. It's a whole episode.
0: Yeah, because the volatility of uh, of that uh, that demise of a relationship, the end of a relationship, and the volatility and the revenge and, and all those things that come into play, uh, sensibility goes out the back door.
1: It does, and um, unfortunately, if there's children involved, some partners or spouses will use the children, yep, to get what they want financially. Or emotionally, because they know that the other partner or spouse is has a, a closer connection to the children and is vulnerable. There's a lot of that happening. A lot of that goes on day to day. But with family law, people need to understand there's three parts to it. So there's the divorce component. The divorce just deals with the actual dissolution of the marriage. Yep. So you get married, and if you've been, you have to be separated for 12 months. Once you're separated for 12 months, you're finished, you can apply for a divorce, and that brings the marriage to an end. Then there's property, which deals with the property and assets from the marriage, which is separate from the divorce. And then there's parenting, which deals with children. So they're the three aspects of family law. Some people will just go through the divorce process because they've sorted their own stuff out together and said, look, we're sensible people, we can do this. They've waited 12 months, they'll go and get their divorce, they'll make their application or be granted. A lot of people can't resolve or disentangle their assets and have disputes over who owns what. So then there's property and property proceedings are all about, you know, basically splitting the property up. So the court's job is to decide at the end of the day what is fair, just and equitable as a division to whichever husband or wife. And that's the court's job. And the way it does that, it goes through a, a four-step process where it identifies what the property pool is, it looks at the contributions made by the parties along the way, it looks at what's left, and then it looks at future needs, like what people need for the future. Oh, okay. And then and then the court says this is what the pool is left over and this is based on all those factors, you know, 60% to him, 40% to her or 60 to her, 40 to him, and it does a split. That's how they deal with property. With children, it's what's in the best interest of the child. So whatever's in the best interest of the child, that's what they look at. They don't look at anything else. And their job, they do that for a number of means. Um, What they do, because a judge is unable to, you know, you've got a father saying one thing, a mother saying another, making allegations, judge says, I don't know who's right, so I'll send you off for a family report. And I'll send them off to an independent family report writer who'll have an interview with the mum, interview with the dad, interview with the children, then with them all together and come up with a report to say what they recommend, who should stay with who, how long the kids should be with who, who has what, and then the judge bases the decision on that.
0: And that that changes depending on the age of the children too, doesn't
1: it? It does, yeah. When the children start getting towards 12 and 13, they can start, Recommending where they want to go. And yeah. As they get older, they can virtually decide where they want to go.
0: Yeah.
1: But if they're younger, they don't get a choice. It'll be whatever the family report writer comes up with, or alternatively, if the parties reach an agreement. So the best way to minimise damage and legal costs is to reach an agreement. Yeah. If you can reach an agreement, you resolve a lot of issues. If you can't, you'll you'll have to go through the system. Yeah. And um, it's quite expensive and consuming emotionally consuming and oh, time consuming. Yep. And and no one wins at the end of the day.
0: That's the that's the takeaway from that. No one wins one at, the, wins end the, at the end of
1: the day. And at the but unfortunately, some cases have to just go that way.
0: Yeah.
1: Yep. There's nothing you can do about it. But um, in a nutshell, that's a system we have in Australia at the moment.
0: Now, if you have a question and you'd like to ask uh, and John to answer that question for you, please just jump on our Facebook page or uh, the uh, the email which is on the Facebook page. That's info.thelegalminefield at gmail.com. It's as simple as that. Let's finish. Have you got, a, have you got a, a tip for us? And I don't mean at the races at Flemington on Saturday. <laughs> if, <laughs> something we should have, have a think about.
1: Yeah, before you sign any document, read it. Don't just sign it. <laughs> Actually read the document. Regardless of who
0: you signed it with? Regardless of who yeah. you're
1: signing it with. And if you're not sure um, and you want some more time to, to check it out, tell the people you want your lawyer or, or, or someone that you know to look at it before you sign it.
0: It often changes the way people look at you when you say that, doesn't it?
1: It does. <laughs> but, but once you, you know, for instance, once you say you're buying a house, and it's not at auction, yeah. so it's a private sale. You sign that contract. You've only got three. That's three clear business days to pull out or cool off. After that, you're stuck with it. Yeah. And if you haven't done your due diligence by getting a solicitor or a conveyancer to look at that document, you're stuck with whatever the terms and conditions are. So yeah, before you sign something, read it. Beautiful. And you went in doubt? Call a lawyer.
0: Yep. Thank you, John. Been lovely catching up. We'll talk again soon.
1: Thank you, Kevin. If you
0: have a question, by all means, send it to infothelegalminefield at gmail.com. We'd be more than happy to hear from you. And any other comments you have, please share them on our Facebook page or send us an email. Till the next time, I'm Kevin Hillier.